Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Best Pictures Podcast. I'm Ian, and this is Maggie, and on this episode, we are doing the 68th Best Picture winner, Braveheart. Braveheart is a 1995 historical war drama um, centered around the historical figure William Wallace, but, you know, as always, when we're covering figures from history, we will largely be talking about them as characters in the film. Um, Though with this one, I think uh, we might go a little hard on some of the historical inaccuracies, because turns out this movie has a lot of stuff that uh, Ian and I are nerds about. Surprise. (laughs) So... There are some things we'll be digging into. Well, and let's just say, like, it pushes the boundaries of acceptable inaccuracy in my mind. Because, like, you have Amadeus that did that, but did it to great effect. I do not think this movie was able to accomplish the same sort of feel. Agreed. Um, I, I think, yeah, we should definitely say that, you know, if you're looking at a historical film and it's not like a documentary, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with historical inaccuracy provided that the film is you know telling a really good good (laughs) telling a really good story has really strong characters is like making those changes for very specific reasons and for a very specific narrative and is like kind of upfront about it and i don't think amadeus anyone involved with that film has ever been like it's accurate oh no oh no and if they did i would question their uh grasp of reality (laughs) <laughs> right. But um, it is very good. And so if you want to hear us kind of talk about maybe like why the historical accu- inaccuracy works in that case, like definitely recommend going back and listening to that episode. But back to Braveheart. Uh, oh, no, movie... I'm so sad. Do we have to? <laughs> <laughs> we have to. Uh, this movie was directed by and stars Mel Gibson uh, in the role of William Wallace. It's centered around kind of that period of the first war of Scottish independence, um, though Again, there are some things we'll talk about with timelines that very much don't match up. Uh, What timeline? I didn't get any timelines out of this viewing, if I'm being honest. They're also not great (laughs) at like centering how long between events we're talking about. Um, I felt a little unmoored during a lot of it. Uh, This was inspired by the 15th century poem, The Acts and Deeds of the Illustre and Valiant Companion, Sir William Wallace. The reason I stumbled over those words a little bit is you should look that up and see the crazy Middle English spellings that I just (laughs) had to translate. Um, So, you know, we are working from source material that is definitely probably going to be more legend and myth than it is fact. But I think that's something the movie could have leaned into. There's like a scene I think we'll talk about where they kind of get at that. But I wish they, you know, maybe they had gone really hard into that idea of like the man versus the myth. Um missed opportunities i think yeah it's like i'm a passenger in a car on the highway i watch the exit and i want to go that way but we just keep on trucking (laughs) um it was shot largely on location in scotland and ireland um this i usually don't like pull direct quotes from reviews um it seemed like it was like largely well reviewed at the time but i did see this quote from rotten tomatoes that made me laugh and i thought was perfect and that was that it was described as distractingly violent and historically dodgy I love that take. And the distractingly violent, like, so true. Those battle scenes were a lot and nothing all at once. But, like, also not as violent or harrowing as some of the more recent things we've watched. I think, I will say, we're probably going to be a little harsh on this movie. I think part of that is because the previous four Best Picture winners we've covered have all been really, really good. So we were, like, kind of due for a dud. 
I think at this point, but the previous four, if people don't remember, were Silence of the Lambs, Unforgiven, Schindler's List, and Forrest Gump. Yeah, so like pretty pretty solid movies, and now we have, I don't know, I don't know. I, I would love to say that we are like perfectly objective and every movie stands alone, but that's just not true. No, no. And again, that's part of the reason why I think it's kind of fun to do them in order, um, because we can kind of see like the swings that may have been at the pop culture forefront at the time that might have led to certain picks. Though, honestly, with this one, I'm kind of like, what were people thinking? I'll just go into um, awards and nominees and then other nominees, and then we can kind of jump in because most of the rest of my background is pointing out historical inaccuracies because I'll be honest, I was pretty bored during a lot of this film. So I spent a lot of the time Googling the actual historical figures and events, um, and they were a lot more interesting and fascinating. So I will kind of drop those tidbits as we go through. Um, But awards and nominations. So Gibson takes home the award for best director which I think is a little odd because as you pointed out before we started recording, there aren't any acting nominees. And usually I feel like if the director gets a best director for a film that they starred in, you usually see at least a nomination for their performance. I just, well, and I kind of struggle with the whole greater than some of the parts concept here because if the acting wasn't on point enough for you know more noms like how does that mean that you did your job as a director to like pull together performances that were good and editing that was effective and just all of those different components into a singular vision i'd i i just struggle with it i think i struggle with the singular vision part right like it's the movie's both simultaneously too simple and too complicated like it's like clearly they're hard hitting on this theme of like freedom and the individual which we'll talk about why that kind of doesn't work in this movie um later on but like they go really hard on that theme but also don't cover it in an interesting and nuanced way and also like there are large segments of the film where i'm like why like why are we watching this what is happening here Yes, exactly. Read the romance between Wallace and Isabella. Why? I just didn't need that shoehorned plot line. Makes (laughs) zero sense. Also completely historically inaccurate because Isabella would have been three at the time the events of this movie take place. Well, you know, anything that happens within a 300 year span in history is obviously contemporaneous. No. (laughs) No. I know that was sarcastic, but my blood just boiled a little. Uh, The history nerd inside me was very displeased. Randall Wallace gets nominated for Best Screenplay. Don't understand. Okay, the writing wasn't the worst. There were a couple good lines. Like, the dialogue was okay, and there were a couple, like, fun little lines, but it's not a well-put-together story. And much like Dennis in Out of Africa, I like a story well told, Ian. Uh, I have to check that I wrote this down correctly really quickly. I did. It won for cinematography. Okay, but I couldn't see shit the entire time. Okay, there were a couple (laughs) like shots and sequences that I really loved how it was shot. But then the rest of it would kind of pale in comparison. It was like I wanted them to lean into that moodiness. I wanted I wanted a more Macbeth feel. 
Mm, yeah. Is what I wanted. Like early on, there are some really pretty shots of them like, you know, in the mist at night in the hills. And like that I liked. And there were a couple of dream sequences that I kind of liked how those were shot. But yeah, but then they threw that visual style out after right. doing two dream sequences. And every other one was like, are we dreaming? Are we not dreaming? Are you going to lean into this like spirituality or spiritualism sort of thing associated with this? I like... Uh, so many missed opportunities. Yes. Like they needed to like pick something and like really commit to it because I, you could have gone with like dreams versus nightmares versus destiny and fate and like versus individual choice. Like that could have been a really cool way to go after that. And then you still get that like freedom narrative you want, but no, again, it was like just too simple and what it was going for. And it didn't, it didn't take any risks or like, really say something with the style of the film which some of the previous stuff we've watched has like really had something to say with the style and yeah this one just didn't um it was nominated for best costume design why the costumes looked really cheap i i was just ready and the armor was terrible i don't mean this as any shade on monty python but like I was prepared for like a hearty har knee slapping like comedy with this armor that they were throwing out there. <laughs> like it was the chintziest looking shit. Now the like actual Scotsman's you like costumes are fine. They're just fine. Though wildly historically inaccurate kilts were not a thing at that time. But again, we're not talking about Kilts historically were not a thing accurate until like the 15 the mid 1500s <laughs> neither were claymores claymores were not really a thing until the mid 1500s um well that's art direction and oh, right and just to level set with everyone <laughs> we're talking like this is set in like the late 1200s right but like the armor the armor was the worst part to me with the costumes it looked completely fake and i know you said no shade to monty python go back and watch holy grail their costumes look more expensive they really do it's more the like feel of laughing at itself, and this one was was not uh, laughing at much itself. too earnest. <laughs> yeah, I just to describe the armor. Sorry, I know we're taking a lot of detours, and yes, we're gonna be nitpicky on this one, but like, it was it was two and a half hours, you guys, of being bored. Uh, it was bored. three hours. It was three straight hours. <laughs> I lost a half hour in there somewhere. <laughs> I don't know where, but I lost a half hour apparently. Uh, my mind just like blanked. Um, but the armor, it's just like these little metal plates sewn not very close together on just fabric. So like wouldn't do anything. Also completely historically inaccurate and looks ridiculous. Like chain mail was a thing for a reason. And they did have some chain mail, but it really looked like that shiny, stretchy, kind of fabric thing that is used to approximate chainmail in the uh, Halloween store like night costumes. It, it yeah. It was bad. No, I just couldn't. So I don't understand the costume design nomination. Um it was nominated for best film editing as well but didn't win. I'm okay I mean, with whatever. the editing nom. Like it it was It, it didn't fine. blow me away, but I'm not like what were they thinking with this nom? Um it won for best makeup. Please tell me it's for more than just the blue face paint, because... I imagine it's partially all the blood, or does that fall under special effects? I don't I, know. I, I don't understand, but okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of like, whatever on that one. Um, 
James Horner was nominated for best original score for this. I like the score at some points, but then they like fucked with it. I, oh, okay. So again, the weird things I play in a bagpipe band, like Scottish Highland bagpipe. And I found it to be off-putting that they would use an Irish Ilian pipe as the like main sound on the soundtrack. Now, like granted, when I looked into this a bit, the reasons were because the Ilian pipe is more expressive and that is absolutely true. It is more expressive, but uh, what? <laughs> if this is supposed to be so like Scotland freedom, why, why? Why did you choose this? Because it's really a very American story that has been translated to a different historical event. Ugh. Like you can absolutely tell this is a very like American patriot kind of narrative. Yeah. Which I think is especially clear when you consider that Bill Gibson started a movie called The Patriot like five years <laughs> later. Fair. Now, aside from the instrumentation, I, I liked the score. The score was fine. Maybe not like up there with my top movie scores, but it, I don't know, comes in in the right places. Yeah. There were moments of it that I really enjoyed. So I'm okay with, I'm okay with a nom and not a win there. Um, it was nominated for best sound, didn't win. And it won for best sound effects, which I think is fine. Yeah. I'll take the effects win. I'm kind of glad it didn't win for sound just because there were, and it, it could just be the fact that I'm watching it with a very specific speaker setup, but they did this thing. Thing where they tried to build this foreboding suspense thing using the really low rumbly booms just everywhere. Everywhere. And I liked and it the I first just... time, but then it got repetitive. Exactly. And so it, it's like, all right, this is like one way to do this. And also it doesn't really, it's not supported by the actual material on screen. So it annoyed me way more than it probably should have. I like, I'm very, with this movie, I'm like, is it me or is it the movie? Like, are we just really the wrong audience for this? I th I feel like you and I are too nerdy about uh, some very specific things to really appreciate this. Like, you play in a Scottish, like, pipe band. I really love that period of history and, like, the politics and, like, took a class on the history of military strategy and we covered a lot of stuff from like around that time period. So like, I feel like you and I are just like, maybe just the wrong audience. I mean, yes, I, but also I'm, I, as much as I would say that a historical epics are not generally my cup of tea. You can't say that seen... anymore. You can't say that anymore. We've watched so many. And you've liked a lot of them. Exactly. So I, I revise that to say surface level historical epics are not my jam. <laughs> yeah, I think it's taken me because I actually watched this two days ago and it's taken me a couple of days to really like mull it over. And I think I know why this one falls so flat for us, but we'll get there. Sweet. So. Let's start getting there. Okay, sorry. Uh, uh, wait, hold on. I got like oh a no. level bit of background. That was much sassier than I intended it for it to be. Ian's like sassy today, you guys. It's um, the movie. It brings it out. It's my um, brave heart. I think it's that beer you're drinking. We should be drinking scotch, but sadly we're not. Um, AFI had this at number 91 on their top 100 thrills list. I am not thrilled. I'm not, not thrilled, thrilled either. All. I did not find this movie thrilling. 
Um, and it was number 62 on their cheers list, which again, what I am I cheering for? Choices. What am I, I cheering for? You're for freedom, Ian. Maggie, <laughs> what is freedom? Freedom. Um, yeah, I think there are better choices. Oh God, was he a nominated hero on their 100 Years, 100 Heroes Don't and Villains list? Don't look at the nominations, list? it'll make you mad. Oh, okay, yeah, that makes me mad. Okay, the nominations, I'm, I'm it was stop. nominated for a lot of other <laughs> AFI stuff. It'll make you mad. Stop it, stop it. Okay. Um, so other nominees from that year, really quickly. Um, number one, the movie I wish had won and that I think should have won, Apollo 13. I uh, su- Such a rewatchable one. We could have had two Hanks movies in a row. I'm not mad at that. We could have had a Hanks double feature. I think we're going to have a Hanks double feature at some point. Uh, maybe not for this podcast, uh, for canon episodes, but it will happen. <laughs> oh, we totally could. Other aside really fast, apparently Elizabeth Ewan, a film critic, describes Braveheart as a film that, quote, almost totally sacrifices historical accuracy for epic adventure. But it's not that epic of an adventure. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I agree with half of this. Anyway, <laughs> continue. Which again, though, I'm not like... I know we're going to go so hard on the historical accuracy. I'm not mad at things that are historically inaccurate. But it's not an epic provided adventure. That they're, <laughs> right. Provided that they're one up front about it and two, like, tell a good story. Like, think about the Hulu series, The Great. I love that title card, but they're like, this is based on a, on things that are occasionally true. Like, that, that show is wildly historically inaccurate, but it's telling a very specific story and going for a very specific tone. Yeah. So, Apollo 13. Babe. Also a delight of a film and so well done. Kind of an odd nominee, though. I feel like this maybe 95 was not like the strongest year because looking at the nominees other than Apollo 13, I'm kind of like, I mean, there's some good movies in there, but like Best Picture winners, Um, Il Postino and then Sense and Sensibility, which again, like I like the 1995 Sense and Sensibility. I don't know if I would say it's Best Picture. I mean, I'm not mad at all those nominees, but I still, let me tell you, I'd rather watch Apollo 13 and Babe literally any day over Braveheart. Same, same. Of the ones, so the, of the nominees, actually the only one I haven't seen is Il Postino. Um, and I think that Apollo 13, Babe, and Sense and Sensibility are all better than Braveheart. Um, I do think Apollo 13 is the one that I'm like, I think that is easily the best movie on that list. But I'm again, you know, some years are really, really, you know, sometimes you have a 1950 where you're like, how do I choose between all of these amazing classics? And then sometimes you have a year where you're like, well, we got what we got. <laughs> so anyway, watch notes. Let's just get into this. Let's just get into oh, yeah. it. So we get introduced so quickly to young William Wallace. Is his backstory as a child really ever ever relevant? I honestly don't think that it is relevant to him so much as it is relevant to trying to show us all of the atrocities that the English perpetrated against the Scottish people at this time in, quote, history. Every every time we talk about history in this film, it is a scare quotes moment. So, like... I get that from a plot perspective, they are trying to build this like depth of betrayal and oppression of the the Scottish population at this time. But I, I don't, it's like the ending when he has this dream with his dead father, where he's like, you're free, William, go take it. Or I, I think that was close to what was said there. 
that's not at the end. That's like in the middle of the movie. Yeah, it, within the first like 20 minutes. And so what am I supposed to take from this? I, I don't know. <laughs> I think character wise, what they're setting up here is that first off, huge issue with this movie is that our main character's entire character arc happens in like the first 30 minutes of the movie where he's he loses his parents as a kid to the English. He grows into an adult, is like, I don't want to fight. I just want to be left alone in peace. Falls in love with a woman whose name I still don't know. Did they give her a name? <laughs> Ian's having to hunt this down. Bear with. Bear with. Murrin McClana. Have n- had no idea what her name was or what her personality was. Anyway, she gets killed in a terrible, brutal way. And then he's like, well, now I'm going to fight for revenge. And then it st- like, you know, builds into this thing. But that's like basically his entire character arc is I don't want to fight. Now I do. And that happens really early on in the film. So I think that's why they're showing that stuff as him as a kid. I can't believe I'm saying this because usually I'm like, don't tell me, show me. You could have level set with a title card, just saying like, this is the time period we're in. This is the political situation. And then roll into like adult William Wallace. I would have been okay with that given how little it felt like they did in that that opening sequence. Because the the most striking scene in that was, well, before we get into this like super... uh, surprisingly violent but like casually violent movie um there are references to rape and sexual assault um we have references to targeted political killings um and things of that nature so yeah just know that before we get in um but the scene where all of these scottish like community leaders are left hanging in a building by presumably the english like i am so annoyed that the gravity of that was not well set when we entered that scene that's also a moment that's incredibly well shot and it's got like that moodiness and that like dark surrealism that i really think could have been carried through the rest of the film to be much more impactful in that way and like really make us root for william because I just, what a shell of a character. The real William Wallace, like, is rootable, as it were. (laughs) Right. Also, very notable change here. The real William Wallace was a member of the gentry. I mean, how else do you learn Latin and French and Scots and English? And (laughs) Also, also they do start with a voiceover from a character that we later find out is Robert the Bruce. But it's like, again... The voiceover over like kind of nothing at the beginning. I'm kind of like, you could have just given me like a dark moody title card and then like rolled into some other stuff. And then you could have rolled into the scene in the hut and like what a mood that would have set and like what a point that would have made. Um, But alas, (laughs) we do not get that. We did not. His dad goes off to this like nebulous unknown fight and comes back dead. Now, I, I will say the young William Wallace, who was... Sorry, the comes back dead. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I He was killed in the, the battle. But James Robinson, who played young William Wallace, is is actually doing what I felt was a good job with what he was given. Like, this performance was really good. I, 
I feel like Gibson's performance has a couple nice moments, but is overall kind of flat. But I think so much of that is down to the writing of the character. And that horrific too. Wig. I think there are moments where he's like, <laughs> yeah, I think it, there are times where he's like really trying to bring like a charm to the character, but like the writing just isn't there to support it. I will say a lot of the like supporting cast, I think was like doing as much as they could with what they had. But I just don't think there was a lot yeah. for them. And I don't think, like, it's almost one of those situations where, like, you have too much cast and we're cutting between them too much. So, like, it's really choppy. Well, and you're and... trying to cover literally 20 extra years of time right now. So maybe it would have been better to focus in on a much smaller, like, either temporal span or, like, uh, I don't know. Or, you know, if you if you need to cover that much ground, but like I, I did feel like there were times and again, I was like Googling a lot of the historical stuff and the historical people, which I felt like definitely gave me more context to what was happening. And if I hadn't been doing that, like I said, you're a little unmoored in time and unsure about like how long between events is happening. I think effectively covering a large range of time like that, again, you know, to throw it back to Amadeus like because you have that like really strong you know of really a villainous central character of Salieri telling you this story as you're like kind of jumping between his narration in the present back into the past but it's done in this way that really keeps the story moving along and also very much like helps the viewer understand where we are in time actually yeah right it was a really well done frame story and Forrest Gump kind of, we're again talking about another good frame story that we just covered, like the way it kind of picks its moments to jump back in. You have this really effective narration. Like if you want to have Robert the Bruce narrating, which I'll be honest, that was the character who I wanted to follow because I was like, oh. He had some conflict. He had conflict, both internal and external. I was like, that would have been more interesting. So if you could have actually woven in more of Robert the Bruce's narration maybe and gotten that like, juxtaposing view of like what we're seeing and really yeah i don't know there was i think so mm -hmm. many ways this could have been made better or hey when you are looking at each of these spans of time you have a understandably distinct version of william wallace because that is what really worked in amadeus is you saw how mozart changed over time and great writing supported by great acting or maybe the river. I don't know. Both were doing great things. <laughs> and that would have leaned into the whole like myth versus man kind of thing too. Like, oh. But alas. But alas. That is our theme for this movie. But alas. So the last couple things I do want to mention for this kind of child William Wallace piece is I, I did appreciate the cinematography and the, the direction coming through when it came to the funeral of his father, especially the night scene where you do have the one bagpiper in profile like this is the sort of myth and legend that we could have been playing with and did Al not. But alas, <laughs> uh, there you go. And again, cause we should ended we make t-shirts that just say, <laughs> but alas, we might should, we should, but then you end that again with what we mentioned earlier, that dream of him talking with his father in a very similar treatment to how he saw a hanging child earlier. Cool setup surrealist feel to it and it made sense for like this would be something that like haunts this character and could be a driving force but then we just drop that and just have 
a very poorly done romance. Yeah. I love that Ian watched this last night and I'd watched it two days ago. And then Ian was like live texting me as he was watching it. And I love that you're the seeming surprise that they fridged this love interest. And I was like, I knew the moment they introduced her. There's a difference between knowing and being disappointed and knowing and being pleasantly surprised. And I was very disappointed. <laughs> I It's even from the way she's introduced. You can tell from the way she's introduced. It's just the like, see her across the market square. And he's just like, oh, she's very pretty. I feel like that's how you always know that the love interest is going to be introduced is when they get introduced without showing any of their personality. Literally nothing. She is an empty vessel of a person. Other than she's headstrong and, quote, takes after her father. I, Which is shown one time. It's, yeah. And very weakly. Like, yeah, it, she's, she, again, for, already forgot her name. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's not well done. And they spend a lot of time on it. They really do. And it, it's when Wallace comes back to his little township village, whatever you want to call it. They're having a celebration for a wedding. They have like an approximation of a Highland Games throwing heavy things contest. I thought about that. I was like, they're throwing heavy (laughs) things. I always loved going to your pipe band Highland Games and watching them throw heavy things. (laughs) It's fun to watch. It's fun. But the thing that annoys the shit out of me is they bring back his childhood friend in a way that I'm like, "What, what? You just pegged this guy with a rock. Hamish? Uh, yes, Hamish. Who also, again, I feel like that character is just shoehorned in to be like this and then the Irish character who like thinks he speaks to God and that Ireland is his island. Stephen of Ireland. It's, it's his island, Ian. Okay, that character could have been so great. <laughs> I know. Both of those characters I feel like were thrown in because they were like, oh, this will be like our buddy's comedy relief. But also like it didn't work and they weren't that funny. Like it didn't lean into enough of the comedy. I, it was reminding me a little bit of a knight's tale. I feel like that was the dynamic they were going for with those characters. How you have like the three guys, of course you have like Heath Ledger's character. Who's like the main one. And then you have like the two friends who are wonderfully comedic and supporting Mm -hmm. roles. But like, I felt like that's the dynamic they wanted, but it didn't execute. Uh, Oh God. No, God. No. Also, during this time, it's important to note we have cut back and forth a little bit to our villain, Edward the First, who um, Long Shanks. Yeah, uh, the actor on Edward, um, Patrick McGowan. He's chewing all the scenery. He knows what movie he's in. He knows what role he's playing. He's great. I enjoyed his performance. I really fucking hated how they set up his son, though. It's like, I I realized that the stated word from Mel Gibson specifically in interviews around this was like, it's not intended to be homophobic. He's just supposed to be weak and ineffectual. And I'm like, great. Love, love that you're equating gay people with being weak and ineffectual. That's that's my favorite. Just because you didn't, (laughs) quote unquote, or at least because you say you don't, you didn't mean it as homophobic doesn't mean it isn't homophobic. And like, uh, yes, historically there were rumors about Edward II, but that's not like the reason the barons turned on him and there was conflict in his reign. Like the reason they turned on him was because there were all these other political factors going on, partially including later wars with Scotland, but also the tensions with France over English territory there. You had different factions of the barons that had risen up. Like, that's not why he was an ineffectual leader. Exactly. 
Exactly. So we'll we'll just leave that. But we do get introduced to a his wife, Isabella of France, who, according to you, was done extremely dirty. They did her so dirty. If you read about like Isabella of France historically, she's so much more interesting. Um, and it's and again, like she and Edward II would have been children at the time of that like first independence war. So like they should actually shouldn't really be in this narrative at all. But um, it's her son Edward III. And like his claims to the French throne through her that and like her pushing of that that later kicks off the Hundred Years War. And like she was known like contemporary accounts of her at the time talk about like how incredibly good she was diplomatically and how intelligent she was and how like they really did like use her to try and smooth out relations with France and like she later usurps Edward II because like their relationship deteriorates and like he's doing things that she's like, I'm out here trying to put out fires and you're making more fires. Like it's a very (laughs) interesting story. And there are scenes I feel like in the latter half of the film, none of the ones where she's with Wallace because all of those scenes are terrible, but ones where she's like interacting with Edward the first where you're getting like, glimpse of that Isabella of like the person who like is calculating and understands like all of the political ramifications and machinations but like we didn't get enough of that like I was like you you pulled this character from history out of their appropriate timeline and then didn't even use them to the fullest extent you could have it's some bullshit yeah they did her they did her dirty the actress is doing the most that she possibly can i think with what she's given um for sure but it's uh sophie marceau doing the most with what she could so we do get wallace making his homestead building his thing out wanting to court murin 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 anyway uh Catherine McCormick's character. We get like a kind of rom commy meet cutie sort of like didn't fit. It 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 was stylistically completely apart from the rest of the film. It was cute, but also why? And this is like the come ride with me on my horse in this beautiful Scottish raining weather. I mean, this movie did make me want to go to Scotland. I will say that. Like, I was just like, man, I want to go. And apparently, uh, after it came out, due to its popularity, there was, like, notable increases in tourism to Scotland, and specifically the Stirling area. So, like, I get that. Bagpipe bands got a shit ton of membership out of this movie. So, like, it it had some, like, interesting cultural implications in the U.S. For sure, for sure. And it, like, renewed interest in Scottish history and stuff like that. But, um... Yeah, I'm not into this like 20 minute long rom-com. And I what they're trying to do is they're trying to make you care about those characters and that relationship, but there's like also not enough meat in those scenes to actually really make you care about them. We really don't understand what's going on in their head and showing us that they like each other is just not enough. Like I it's really interesting cuz I did this week go see Desire Under the Elms, which is a 1922 um, Elliot play. And that particular playwright drew a whole bunch from like Greek tragedy. And it essentially was famous for reskinning kind of Greek tragic elements in an American story frame. 
But the same sins of that play were repeated here, where you go from zero to 100 on romance, you don't have a solid timeline, you don't see any sort of motivation for why the love interests are wanting to be together. And it's just... I think that's it. Like zero to a hundred, if done, here's when zero to a hundred bothers me is when you don't understand why these people are drawn to each other. Like that's when it really bothers me. Cause I'm like, I don't understand. Like if you're going to go from zero to a hundred, there has to be something there immediately. And there. Isn't. And maybe if I had watched this in 1995, when Mel Gibson was maybe a heartthrob, maybe I would have gotten it. I don't I, know. Yeah, I don't know. I think, I think he was like a pretty, I think he was a big name at the time. I don't. He just, uh, he he felt much too old for this role, given that they cast him against Catherine McCormick. Like, they were not a pairing that looked or felt at all compatible. We don't have a great sense of either of them, really. No. Like, there's not, the characters don't go really deep. So, yeah, it just, it didn't work. Um, they secretly get married because there's the whole thing about like the prima noctis, which according to historians, not a thing. Can I just like rant for a hot second about how that scene is like so fucking exploitative. It's just like, okay, let's use something that is arguably horrible rape to advance the like incredulous feelings of the main character so that we have like a weighty enough motivation for him to rebel against the English leadership. Like, no, there are plenty of other reasons why you would want to do that. Freedom being one of them. <laughs> like, ah. And like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure like sexual assault was among the atrocities that were happening at the time, but like, it's the way they shoot it too when it gets introduced with that like newlywed couple at the wedding of like the bride being like almost this like martyr or saint or what like it was it was really gross i really didn't like it aged horribly horribly did not work also just like i don't i feel like the especially early on in this film they were just trying to like use whatever cheap trick they could to like shock you into outrage instead of like actually focusing on building these characters so that you really cared what happened to them. And like, to be perfectly honest, if you care enough about a character, it doesn't have to be like the worst thing you could possibly think of that happens to them in order to get the audience on their side. Oh, absolutely not. (laughs) But like they went for cheap tricks instead of actually putting in the effort to build the characters. And honestly, it goes back to the same critique that I had for Deer Hunter. There are so many real atrocities that you could have used to the same effect, but you had to manufacture. Like why? Just why? It's so lazy. So anyway, um, (laughs) moving on, uh, Murrin uh, finds herself is killed. She's like, it, the, just know that like shit happens. Yeah. She's killed by the English. Like that's, that's really the motivating factor for know. Wallace to then take the local magistrates like pseudo fort. It looked like a play place at a Burger King circa 2000. Um, I don't, there's, I did anyone do any research? I don't know if whoever worked on this movie knows what time period they're in. It was questionable. I don't think they know. Because <laughs> that fort, it looks like something from like the 800. I was like, that doesn't look sophisticated. 
I for the late middle ages. And the thing that killed me, and I haven't set it up until this point, but I've kind of felt this way the entire time. It looks kind of like a cheap museum diorama. It, again, like this, the sets and costumes look cheap. Like they don't look sturdy or legit. No. And that's not to say that thought didn't go into them and work didn't go into them. But however, for whatever reason, the way that they appear on the screen when you're watching it is just... Like, how did practical effects age so poorly? <laughs> well, it had like a 65 to $70 million budget. Yeah, I don't know what happened. So, like, there was budget there. Like, as, you know, there are some movies that we've covered. Um, not a ton of Best Picture winners, but especially some of our, uh, like, special episodes where it's like the movies had incredibly small budgets and they were working with what they had. And, like, that's totally understandable and everything. But, like, this... This movie has a big enough budget that I'm surprised at some of the looks and like some of the ways it looked. And then again, if we're talking about small budgets that look more expensive, go watch Body Python and the Holy Grail. Like that movie looks so much more expensive than its budget. Yeah. So I, uh, they, this was where I first noticed that kind of sound effect treatment thing that they did with the booming and some like slow motion to try and get this tension really built up. But again, the motivations were so thin that I really, all of that fell completely flat for me. I I didn't have that like feeling of, Oh God, shit's going to go down. The implication too, that I gathered based on like where the script goes. Cause we're also cutting back to like the nobility. I think we've been introduced to Robert the Bruce at this point, who again, that's the character I would have wanted to follow. And Angus McFadden absolutely kills it. But, you know, they kind of have this implication that it's like, oh, that one act that Wallace did spurred on this entire revolution. And that's just not accurate. Like there there were like revolts popping up and Wallace basically just like in like ends up leading another revolt that just coalesces into this thing. Like it's I feel like it just so simplified what could have been a much more interesting political conflict but again that's also like my jam like political intrigue and like that kind of thing like that is that is my absolute favorite well and that likely would have been more believable and more effective than a shoehorned uh romance (laughs) like i i understand that there are the stories of like uh Uh, oh shit Helen of Troy like that whole like Trojan horse thing like I get that that is a thing that happened but they can't replicate that historical like thing but also also like that war it's like to go (laughs) to sideline a little bit into the Trojan war now um it's like yeah like Helen kicks it off but like it's tensions have been building like like she was the excuse and that could have been, if if you have to fridge McCormick's character, if you have to, that would have been a much more interesting treatment of that situation. But then also it's like, I guess the movie wants to be like, oh, it started as revenge, but he very quickly is like, now it's all about freedom. And also never defines what he means by freedom under a feudal system. Of which he is the gentry. In a time before the cons... He also talks a lot about like <laughs> Scotland and the country. Yeah, which he should have been in the movie. He's a commoner in history. He would have been part of the gentry. So he would have been just like pissed off about like taxes and shit. Um, 
which I know I, I was like, you know, this is a very American version of like patriotism put into like medieval Scotland. It's like also America, the people in power were pissed about taxes and shit. It wasn't just about the concept of freedom, but also he talks a lot about the country and Scotland as a country. And it's like, this is a time before the concept of nationalism really exists. Like it's more about the realm yeah, it's about the realm. Like, you're still under a feudal structure. So, like, I want to know what exactly he means by freedom as a concept under this feudal structure. Like, it, uh, we'll leave that aside for a bit. Again, I'm being really picky because I find this time in history really interesting. Well, and they did this time in history dirty by your standards, which I think are not unreasonable standards. So, we get a kind of sequence of scenes of them uh, being, you know, rebellious burning down forts and things, being sneaky and entering them because they took over the, uh, what, foraging party, scouting party and swapped their uniforms in the uh, most groundbreaking of uh, duplicitous moves. Um, I just, I feel like we got a lot of little like mini shots of stuff and I wish we could have focused more on the larger battles and made them more like varied and interesting. I don't know, like the, with, a few exceptions, which we'll point out when we get there. I was kind of bored by a lot of the battles. A lot of the fights were the same. I didn't think they were shot as well. And I feel like at this point, you and I are qualified to comment on a well-shot battle because we've watched so many. Totally agree. So to, but before we get to like the actual battle part, we do get some development. Um, sorry to like shut that thread down, but there are like a couple things I wanted no, to talk fine. to you, talk about first. So one is... Again, the continued vapid depiction of Edward II, like as being so focused on clothes, and he's like, again, I'm I'm gonna keep coming back to this. Fucking a, like, can we be more stereotypical? <laughs> like, no. I honestly, I I honestly don't so think so. I'm, that just really fucking annoyed me. Um, so there's that. But we get a scene that I actually did kind of like minus the fact it was setting up another really shitty unneeded romance between Isabella like her conversation with her uh what would you call her handmaid uh her handmaid yeah, yeah. um about Wallace and what how he's fighting for love and how that's so romantic and I'm like okay this is not I'm sorry like a princess from France would not like that's not a thing that like they like she would be well aware of like political situations and political motivating factors, especially Isabella of France, who, like I said, was noted at the time that she was like great at diplomacy and really smart. I they I feel like they make her when it's so weird because there are scenes with her dealing with Edward where she plays it very intelligently um, or with Longshanks where like she plays it very intelligently. But then anytime Wallace is involved, she turns into a fucking stammering schoolgirl like she's just so naive (laughs) and you're like that's not consistent with like the little glimpses you showed me here it's also just like not consistent with like what you would expect from a woman in her position and i especially if you had the romance earlier i'm like make her different like make them different she's not a hollow character stop making her be hollow she could have i'm like she could have been so much more and it could have been more interesting and again like I don't know. Like, it's just such wasted potential. And uh, there's no chemistry between the two of them. It, again, doesn't make sense. And you don't need it 
for like her interactions against Edward. Like they give her enough other reasons to not like Longshanks. And hell, just the like, I respect, she made some, there was some line about her saying that she respects Wallace. That literally is enough. We do get an aside that there's an army being sent north for battles and reasons and things, but we'll get to that. Um, Last scene is this hunting scene and introduction of Stephen of Ireland. So came completely out of nowhere. And then you have Wallace hunting a deer, almost being assassinated, but Stephen saving him and then introducing this concept of like divine blessing of his presence and leadership of the uh, rebellion. They clearly were looking at their script and was like, oh, it's not funny. We need we need a character that is just a joke. So Holy they, shit, the shade. <laughs> well, because if that wasn't why they added him, then they could have done so much more with him, right? If we lean back into that idea of like dreams and destiny versus free will, then Steven becomes a much more interesting character as this representation of like, is he just this crazy guy who thinks that God talks to him or like, does God actually talk to him? Is this actually like Wallace's destiny versus his choice? Like, again, if that character hadn't just been thrown in because they were like, Oh, we need comic relief. How about a crazy Irish guy? Then more would have been done with the character. Mm, You're so right. And this is, Oh, thank you. (laughs) I'm more disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) I'm making a shit. Just, Oh, So anyway, we get the Battle of Sterling Bridge. Many issues with this. First off, where the fuck was the bridge? Where's the bridge? (laughs) Why is there no bridge at the Battle of Sterling Bridge? Especially because, again, I was bored. (laughs) So I Googled (laughs) the real Battle of Sterling Bridge. Actually, really interesting and could have been a like it has the fodder to translate really well to screen. Cause like, again, you have the bridge, you have this point of contention and it's the idea of like, you know, is the English army gonna cross it? If they cross it, like they need to cross it to get to their goal, but also that's gonna be a dangerous crossing. So like you could have built up this tension here. You could have had some really interesting military tactics come to the fore, but like, and the Battle of Sterling Bridge as filmed is fine. It's not the most interesting or dynamic that we've seen. They have some cool stuff with the slow motion cavalry charge, which is cool. I Here's where they do the beats with the mm-hmm. drums the first time to kind of build that tension, which was really nice. And I will say, I know that you say it's just fine, but I actually, outside of the context of the movie, the way the cavalry charge was filmed against Wallace talking about waiting and waiting and the way that they cut that and the fact that you have the slow motion horses against the real time Scotsman, like really cool effect to show this like dilation of time when you're facing something that's arguably terrifying. And then even the sound coming in under that, this is where I'm was like, okay, cool. The sound and the sound effects deserve this. And then it ending with the spears. Great. Everything after that point, completely lost me agreed i think that i think that that cavalry charge segment is like the exception to the rule absolutely is but like outside of that i wasn't super like the battle was okay we also i 
think it's in a later battle they try to do more of this, but we don't get a lot of like character development within the battle, which especially if you have a long battle sequence, I think is really important and which we've seen done effectively in other films. But like, I just think about like, you know, even like how all quiet on the Western front battles were shot. Like that's so different and more interesting a dynamic. Granted, they're going for like a slightly different feel in that they are just like, look how incredibly horrible this is. True. But it's like, it's very effective. But I mean, you could have gone for the same thing here of like, look at the overwhelming odds, look at how scary it is. And I think you're right that like the editing on that cavalry charge tries to get there or like does get there, but then the rest of the battle doesn't have the same effect. Not at all. And it's the infantry fighting that really is the low point for me because it's it's one of those things where it felt like the ask was make it bloodier and so they made it bloodier and they made the filming frantic and lots of quick cuts and all of that but in that shuffle we completely lose sight of what any of the characters that we've been introduced to are doing can't follow a thread to save my goddamn life and that's not for lack of trying like i was sitting there like okay where are the people i care about Ian was paying attention (laughs) because after i watched the movie and i texted him i didn't pay that much attention i was very bored can you pay attention (laughs) so ian Ian really did try to pay attention and find our people but it just it it lost any sort of continuous thread through that that infantry fighting scene and that made it totally just pedestrian and like it not unwatchable so much as just it was stuff happening on the screen. Yeah. It it just wasn't anything special. And like I said, like we've, we've watched so many battle scenes and we've watched ones that like so effectively either get across this idea of like, look at the odds, look at how horrible this is and how terrifying this is, or which are like showing us our characters throughout and following our characters and allowing us to kind of like move with them and see their fear and their, you know, progress and near misses and stuff. And I, we just didn't get the same thing here. They do win because of the cavalry and it was like a very glorious, inspiring end of sorts. But it, they kind of. I mean, again, that is that is the bit that that is the exception yeah, to the rule. Yeah, but it it almost they didn't contextualize what I was seeing on the screen very well because it it from what I was seeing from the battlefield and the number of casualties, like in my head, I'm like, this feels kind of like a pyrrhic victory to me. Like, do you even have any forces to continue this mission of independence? And it just. I don't know. It's it's a weird, it's really weird because when they first took the magistrates, um, I guess, fort way back right after Murin uh, was murdered, it things felt much too small. And then at this point, things felt much too large. And I just, I'm not sure what to make of it. And again, throughout this entire time, where's the timeline? <laughs> We didn't really see him build his army and build his not, allies. Not at all. Which you would think would be kind of that next step. To be fair, they tried to kind of give us that scene with Robert the Bruce and the other, uh, I guess, clan leaders. <laughs> uh, what did they call that group? Um, anyway, it's it's the group of like uh, gentry, noble leader folks in Scotland that 
hold the power and everything. Um, and all of a sudden we kind of get this characterization of Wallace as like a very passionate and uh, singularly focused character. Don't know how he got here. Right. And then now it's all again about this very vague concept of freedom. And there's like no mention of like revenge that he, that seemed to be his motivator. And it's like, okay, but we never saw him like overcome that. Like I just, I, I, Wallace to me is as a character, like this character is not that inspiring. Also, this character is extremely one dimensional, which by this point in the movie, like Here's where I think this movie really fails and what I was talking about earlier. I think when you have an epic, you absolutely cannot have a boring protagonist because you, we have to follow that person because he's boring because he's one dimensional and because any character arc he had happened so early. So then there's really nowhere for him to go for the next two and a half hours. And in order to like hold your attention for that long, you need to have someone who, they don't, they don't even have to be a good person. They just have to be a good character. Like you have to have someone whose arc you want to watch and who you want to follow and who is interesting and complex and also has somewhere to go and to change. Salieri is not a good person, but is extremely interesting. Extremely interesting to watch. And again, has a great character arc. Uh, throwing it back to some other epics we've watched, Lawrence of Arabia, you and I both extremely frustrated with the character of Lawrence. We did not like him as a character, but he has somewhere to go, even if it's a devolution. Like we watch an arc happen and our frustration very much drove us to like continue watching. I was not bored during Lawrence of Arabia at any point. I was very frustrated, <laughs> but I was not bored. Uh, Gone with the Wind, Scarlett O'Hara, not a good person but has a very clear arc. Like we see also a devolution. What I'm learning is that if it's an epic, I want to watch them devolve. I'm okay with them like doing <laughs> great things. I into madness. I don't know. I feel like Ben-Hur is both in some way. <laughs> Sam, I was going to point out Ben-Hur next. Like Judah, I don't think is like, I think of the, the main characters and epics I've mentioned is probably the least likable or the least like, nuanced but still a, has a very strong characterization and personality like we have a very clear personality with him um drives the movie and he has like a very distinct character arc um well oh even for a recent epic Schindler's List here's here's one where they have like a positive character arc Schindler at the beginning of the film not a good person we do not like him and we see throughout the film this gradual change in him so that by the end he has done something good. Um, so again, like you, you need somewhere for the character to go. And I feel like Wallace didn't have anywhere to go. They were like, he's great <laughs> for three hours. So I think that's our thesis statement. So we should just like move into lists now. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but I think, I think that's, uh, that's going to be like my new answer. That's my theory around epics. I strongly agree with this. It, because it's again we're seeing Robert start to have to do the complex machinations of what is my familial responsibility versus my responsibility to this concept of Scotland, and how am I going to stay true to my word, but stay true to my blood, but also work to get all of these other gentry 
on board with whichever plan and how am I going to prevent being undermined? Like there's this 17 dimensional chess that he has to be doing. That is so much more interesting. We only, it's so much more interesting, but we only really get into it in the back half of the movie because there's nowhere to go with the main character. So we almost have to shift focus to this different character. Um, but again, like I, I would have watched the, the movie about Robert and like him trying to balance all that shit would have been totally my jam. And then if you have Wallace is kind of something in the background more and then you get like the myth. Would have been so yeah, great. Yeah. Would have been good. So anyway, back to the plot. <laughs> they take York. Um, the way that they filmed this, I actually did enjoy. Um, I thought that it was maybe a little bit gratuitous on the like pitch and burning and like it was I don't know they were again leaning into that like kind of hyper violent quote savage characterization of what was going on um but we ultimately do get led into the most awkward scene between Wallace and Isabella who has been sent to negotiate peace slash a truce with Wallace I hated the way they filmed this and I I can't really put my finger on exactly why, but I think it has to do with how they cut between the kind like not quite close enough close-ups of each of them speaking to the other, but in a way that was completely disconnected from them being in the same scene. It's, I, I don't know. It felt like each one was acting to a brick wall. And this is where it's like supposed to be like, Oh look, they like, like each other and it's like there's no chemistry there it's so unbelievable don't believe it all oh wait speaking of chemistry we completely forgot to mention way back after the secret marriage to murin they decided to consummate their relationship on the banks of a river in the fucking winter in scotland and can i just point out that that is not how that shit goes down My favorite text I got from Ian as he was watching this was, I'm just going to say it, Outlander has better sex scenes. Much better. So much better. And better sidekicks. And I was like, I literally have the exact same note. better comedic relief. Like... Better comedic relief. Better battles. Ugh. Okay. Anyway. Sorry. I... I, It's a very different time period, but it's You you talked about chemistry, and obviously that means sex, so I had to... Um, anyway, back to the negotiation scenes. Uh, they try to buy him off, but he's like, no, freedom. Take the fucking money and then just don't. I, um, yeah. I, I, William Wallace doesn't feel like savvy enough to me to be leading. Again, singularly minded, not particularly inspiring. Don't understand the specifics or even beyond just they killed his father around why he feel so strongly about like this rebellion like where's his his stake and i mean i i get that there's implicit stake here but right but there is also always like with a rebellion or something like that like, there is a strong political component and wallace seems completely detached from that which is very unbelievable um after this scene though we do have maybe my favorite scene in the movie which is when Isabella's reporting back to Edward. This was actually fantastic. This was so good. And I feel like the actors in this scene do a really great job. Um, you know, ev- like everyone in the scene is so good where Longshanks is saying like, okay, now we're going to pull in. We have people from France. We have like so-and-so. They're like, we have these Irish mercenaries, completely historically unfounded. 
Um, though it does lead to actually that's that's kind of like funny. the one thing that made me <laughs> chuckle later. Um, and he's like, we're going to pull them in and we're going to attack him. And Isabella is saying, like, that would take weeks to do. And here's where we're getting a bit of her, like, understanding just the basics of the military tactics. <laughs> and the king saying, oh, I know. I sent word before I sent you to Wallace, revealing that, like, sending her was completely just to lull him into security. And we have her anger at that. And I can't remember what her exact response to him is but it's something that's very like savvy and clever and we see kind of the click with her of like oh i'm dealing with a monster so i'm going to need to tailor my interactions accordingly yeah i think the line was along the lines of uh he's not a king like you and it was the shadiest thing and i loved it yeah, it was like the perfect response and we're seeing that she's starting to get it. And then you also have the comment where he's like, did you bring back the money if he refused it? And she's like, well, I gave it to the poor and Longshanks gets mad about that, which as a villain is fine and works as a character, though the original Edward I was actually known widely for his charity, so. Well, I also, just saying. she gave a very clear and in my personal opinion, I am not Longshanks. Savvy, but exactly. savvy reason for that, too. Like, yeah. it's like curry favor with the people that might be turned against you in a rebellion. <laughs> yes, and I, that was the moment where I was like, oh, this character could so have been much so more. much more. Like, she could have been so much more, and it would have been so much fun. Because then we could have gotten some of that political intrigue and, like, the push and pull between her and Longshanks. And, but no. Also, sorry, just quick note for another quick historical inaccuracy that has to do with Longshanks. Uh, at the very beginning of voiceover, they talk about the war against the pagan king. Edward I and William Wallace would have both been Catholic. Hmm. Well, you know. I can't decide if they did no research when writing this or if they did any and just didn't care. Well, again, it goes back to that one quote from some reviewer that I said that basically you threw out all historical accuracy for the sake of a quote epic adventure. And I disagree that it's epic it's adventure, not but that epic of an adventure. I mean, it has the trappings of an epic adventure, but it is not compelling. <laughs> anyway, that was my favorite scene. And I think it had the best acting and like the best it was writing beautiful. in it. Like, Oh, mm-hmm. so moving very quickly into the battle of Falkirk. So there is some brief politicking again, trying to get some of the leaders on board. But the battle itself. Is this where we get the big speech and they moon everybody? Uh, Yes, it is that big speech and they moon everybody. But the thing about King Edward I, Longshanks, that I'm like, we we get that you're terrible. You don't have to continue making comments like, oh, send the Irish in first. They cost nothing. Like, at this point, it's real heavy handed. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm fine with it. Um, I just, yeah, I wish I wish it like more came of his cruelty and you started to see people like questioning yeah. him more or something. Uh, there is that funny moment where you, they do send the Irish and uh, the Irish and the Scottish. It's like showing cutting between the meats charging for each other. And then they meet and they just stop and like shake hands kind of over yeah. there. <laughs> Mutual hatred of the That's English. Great. So that was a good little And again, chuckle. why it's such a travesty they used alien pipes, but <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, um, I I appreciated the kind of like surprise around pitch and fire that they introduced in here and the like kind of bait and switch that they had with, okay, this battle is going great, but all of a sudden 
all of the cavalry just rides off. Like I kind of, I enjoyed that from a narrative standpoint. I thought the editing was fine. I wish they could have set that up a little bit more. And again, if they had had Wallace be really involved in any of the politicking, like having the cavalry turn and leave, is this the bit where he goes after Edward and is sort of stopped by this mysterious yes. knight that we then find out is Robert yeah, the Bruce? You mean Buckethead? Yes. <laughs> this betrayal felt so empty because we had not seen the two of them interact enough and we had not clearly established a bond, like a strong bond between them. So I was like, I don't know why William is so like, or appears so just like deeply hurt by this. He is completely incapacitated by this betrayal. Like this is the height of melodrama. But like, it doesn't make sense that he would be that hurt by it given how little we've seen them interact if we're throwing it back to ben-hur even for like another epic the relationship between judah and masala like you know varying interpretations of that relationship but like it however you want to interpret it there's no doubt that those characters have a very strong bond which makes judah's discovery and like betrayal by masala hurt so much more and then when you have like that scene right after the chariot race between the two of them, like that scene is so much more emotional weight because like we have a clear understanding of a strong bond between these characters. I didn't have that here between Wallace and Robert. They had next to no development other than I choose you as king. Like, okay, cool, but we don't know why, other than this kind of oblique storytelling by the dying father of Robert of Bruce, how the that particular clan is so important and has done so much and uh, only looks out for their own. Like, I. Right. So you're like, why would William be like so trusting and inspired by Robert? Like, and be like, I think you would be a great king. Like, William Wallace arguably could not have been as dumb as depicted in this movie. No, again, I mean, no one's this simplistic. No. There's just not layers to him. And I I just wanted to see more layers. I wanted to see him be savvier. I wanted more of a relationship between him and Robert so that this betrayal actually meant something. It Yeah. So anyway, this drives Wallace to kill some of the other gentry people. Like somehow they, they kind of shoehorn in, in the like dream thing again. But it, alas. But alas. It had not been a strong enough thread throughout the movie for that no. to really and feel right. They're starting to kind of position it as the walls closing in around this council of uh, nobles. And the one noble who was killed like falls from the ceiling on the dinner table. And you see Robert the Bruce getting really freaked out by it and all of this. And I just... I, but also like kind of starting to change his mind and be like, he's right. Cause he has that bit where he's like, well, maybe he'll come for you next. Like, but I, I wanted more. I wanted more of Robert. He's the more interesting character. I just wanted more of yeah, him. I agree. Now they did give in the, around this time in the film, this actually kind of interesting montage of lots of commoners talking about the story of William Wallace and we get to see how it's turned into a legend and a myth. And this is the scene 
that I'm so pissed they didn't capitalize on more. I know. That could have been such a fun thing to play with throughout. I think there had been a line at one point where someone's like, he can't be William Wallace, he's too short, because it gets being like, he's like seven feet tall and stuff, which apparently was an allusion to like that 15th century poem that they used as kind of like inspiration. I'm not even going to say source material, uh, but apparently in that he's described as like seven feet tall. But like, again, you could have played with this idea a little bit more. It would have been more interesting. Just didn't. Just didn't at all. So a couple more. It's the, the thing about this movie is it's, it's hitting plot points, not character progressions at this point. And so we get the ambush of the King's truce, which Catherine, not Catherine, I'm so sorry. Isabella has warned Wallace about. So they trap the assassins in this hut and burn them alive. Okay, great. More, more savage things for no reason. Uh, Then Isabella and he have an affair, which the wig alone is a massive just no just no no i love how i love how ian will get so hung up on wigs because you can do wigs and they look like okay (laughs) this looks horrible do you remember the one um the daughter of the brother in national uh lampoon's christmas uh shit um it's it's the one niece of the main character in Christmas Vacation. The okay. wig they have that child wear is William Wallace's wig. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> I don't think you're wrong. I don't think you're wrong. One of these movies is supposed to be serious. <laughs> I'll let you decide which one. I just, sorry. I that. No, but also, also every time they cut to this like really lackluster romance, um, it stops the movie in its tracks. Like, it just completely disrupts the pace. Like, it just, uh, it's really annoying. It's, yeah. And they immediately cut into this super weird montage-ish thing where there's this massive soundtrack swell. And we see the deterioration of the king and the, like... Isabella being all smitten with Wallace and this just super that's the shot that got me in that I I remember just being like what because it's like the deterioration of the king so like you think the montage is doing one thing and then you just have and I think within this montage you have the deterioration of Edward but you also have the deterioration of Robert's dad as well which they're paralleling which works conceptually and then there's just the really weird shot of Isabella in the middle of it just like walking and like clearly being in love and i'm just like okay cool random like, emotions Why? that is what this okay you're like that doesn't parallel either of the other two it was super confusing the most confusing i just yeah anyway we get a, apparently there is a meeting with the council that Wallace has been invited to, and he's talking with his sidekick, Stephen and mm, Hamish. Hamish. I was about to say Murdoch because again, I'm stuck on Outlander. On Outlander. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to watch Outlander like tonight actually, because I'm like, oh, it's so much better. And it, and it tries to do a lot of the same stuff, but it just ex- executes better. I mean, partially because it's like a mini series. So they can, or not like a miniseries, but it's like a series so they can like take more mm-hmm. time with stuff. But also but. their uh, like writing is good. Um, yes. Wow. Sorry. The that was really harsh. I, I feel kind of bad. Well, the source material is also a little bit True. better too. 
True, true. Um, and so we get this, again, speech coming out of nowhere about freedom and nothing if not freedom. And I'm like, okay, can, can we know what that means? Or like... Yeah, especially because in this movie, he's situated as a commoner saying this to nobles. That's not my main gripe. It's more that what the fuck is freedom to you? And I don't know, but I agree with the historical piece. I mean, there's, well, there's, there's that, but also the fact that you have a commoner walking into this council of nobles being like, we're fighting for freedom. That's not how you're going to get those nobles on your side. Unless you're like, we're fighting for freedom for you against the English. Like, again, there's just no like political savvy there. It doesn't make sense. Like, ugh. They're like, no, but he's so inspiring. And I'm like, but is he? He does get punched by Hamish, understandably, because he's being an idiot. Um, But it's fine. So he he rides into Edinburgh. He is, of course, ambushed, as we knew would happen. Um, There was a lot of soundtrack trying to do things here that were well above and beyond what the rest of the film was giving like very mismatched energy in my opinion there is a great scene this is where like robert tried to have peace and then his advisor like betrays yeah some other like uh noble person has essentially sold them out at like the instruction of robert's father and then you do have that really great scene with robert and his father after that where like robert's like yelling at his father and you have the single tear at the end of it. Very good. Again, Angus McFadden, absolutely killing it. And I'm like, this would have been the more interesting explanation than you actually could have, if you had better development on Edward the second, then you could have paralleled Robert and his father versus Edward and his father could have been a lot more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so Wallace has been betrayed. Surprising. No one. I almost like, I almost wish the movie had stopped earlier and then you just have, or maybe even stopped at this point and then you just have like the title card or something explaining what happened to him because like this last bit drags so much. So we get a very pithy line from Isabella that I love where she's, well, actually, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. There's a essentially a sham trial. He's imprisoned. Isabella wants to come visit him. She's like, the the guard is being difficult and not letting her in. And her her line is something along the lines of, the king's going to be dead. My husband is inept. Who do you think is going to be running this country in like two weeks? <laughs> yeah. Which like, again, you're like, they did her character so dirty because you're like, that is such a good like line. And like, we just, I don't know. I was like, I we should have been seeing her build that power more. Uh, we didn't get to see it, which is such a shame. No. So she visits him. She again gets love drunk in the worst way possible. And again, just the whiplash between her, the way she deals with that guard to like immediately how she's talking to Wallace. I just. You're like, this is not the same person. Like, this is not the same person who has like foresight and like is intelligent. It just feels like two completely different people. I'd agree. And especially when you pair that with the scene of her talking to the dying Edward the first and that again, completely. Now we're back to the politically savvy, like 
I am in control like, person. holy shit, that whispering in his ear menacingly, like, your blood dies with you. That is the political shit I would live for. Yeah. Uh, again, Sophie Marceau killing it in that scene. Patrick McGowan killing it in that scene. Even, like, Peter Hanley, who plays Prince Edward, like, he's doing a really good job in that scene of kind of, because he can't hear, but he, like, knows she's saying something. All three of them in that scene, really good. Um Again, though, this timeline doesn't work. The implication there being that, like, oh, Edward III, like, was actually William Wallace's son. And it's, like, actually, no. Not how that went down. The whole the whole point is that he uh, had claims to both the English and French thrones. Anyway, sorry. I won't get into 100 years war stuff. <laughs> if you want to know more about that, please read At World's End by Ken Follett. Really good. Goes into Unfortunately, what we do have to go into now, though, is the execution scene and the extremely heavy-handed Messiah references. With the cross, the like boards that they tie him to being a cross, and they linger on it so much. And you're like, come He's on. He's not a savior. He never was a savior. You have not given me any reason to believe that he is a savior. They go like super hard into this like death and torture scene. And like, I mean, you know, the real William Wallace was drawn and quartered, which is a horrific, horrific thing. We just like didn't need this. Like it felt it felt gratuitous. It also just like I didn't care enough about the character for it to really hit the emotional chord. And then they once again kind of sort of brought back the idea of like dreams and stuff when you have his uh fridged wife like walking through the crowd but we hadn't played with that enough throughout the movie for it really to have an impact like if we wanted to have this idea of like his past haunting him with like his father and his wife wouldn't it have been really cool to like see them on the battlefield in the mists before a battle as like a reminder of why he's fighting like anything. or maybe them like saying and exactly anything about anything that happened in the movie other than wake up that is the extent of the advice that he got from his fridged wife. Or like if we'd had the wife in the background in the dark corner of the cell while Isabella is talking to him. I'm slowly making this into a gothic drama. I would have watched the shit out of it. Like would have been interesting. Yeah. I lean into that tone. Lean into like this like creepiness and the mists and the moors. And but no. But alas. <sighs> And again, they're like, they're trying to bring the soundtrack in at the correct beats, but it's like somebody looked at the instructions of how to elicit emotional response and just did things based on those instructions, as opposed to like building off of what was already there. It feels like very formulaic, but in like a bad way. Yes. Much more succinct way to express what I was trying to say. <laughs> none of it really feels like organic. And the yelling freedom at the end totally fell flat. Like, oh, his last word is just freedom. Great, glad you feel free now. Uh, yeah, I just it didn't like. They very clearly wanted there to be like a strong emotional impact there, and I just didn't nope. feel it. And of course, they couldn't end it there, and instead. Oh, I forgot they didn't end it right on that. Like, why would you not just end it on the freedom? There's your button. Because we obviously needed Robert the Bruce to have a redemption arc uh, of grand total of 45 seconds. His line about bleed with me. Okay, Robert the Bruce. Okay. <laughs> that line about, uh, I hope you washed your ass today. It's about to be kissed by a king. Like that was, that was actually funny. <laughs> that was a good little line. Yeah, there's some good little lines. But I just, 
Thank God I didn't have to watch yeah, another battle. Yeah, that's when we reveal he's the narrator and it just kind of ends. I just, they did try to do too much and therefore did none, none of it. I just, I'm, I'm more than disappointed. Yeah. But again, I mean, like we'd had a run of four really good ones. We were kind of, we are kind of due for a dud. I mean, I'm sad about it, but you're right. All right. Shall we list? We shall. So I am panning this movie um, completely. It is my new number 55. Um, So it puts it uh, before Chariots of Fire, but after Annie Hall. So uh, Annie Hall, while we were, I I think, had very similar complaints about shallow one-dimensional characters with like questionable slash unknowable motives, there was at least some interest in like Annie Hall and like Woody Allen's character was to some extent interesting to think about, even if I didn't like the way that it like kind of came together in the final film and he's insufferable. That movie also is like interesting visually. Like they do like the really cool things like where they have like the conversation and then the dialogue of their inner thoughts coming up as like subtitles. You have kind of the bit um, in the bedroom where like she kind of like, it's like her thoughts almost as if it mm-hmm. were like a ghost kind of her sitting there and talking like there's some cool movie making stuff that happens. And I didn't there. think we get any of that cool movie making like technique or experimentation stuff at all with Braveheart. We got it in maybe like a couple scenes. They didn't like capitalize. They didn't, they didn't lean into it. Ugh. Yeah. Now with Chariots of Fire, um, both of these movies commit the cardinal sin of, in my personal opinion, being extremely boring. Um, I do think, and this is not meant to be very big a compliment, like at least we had larger stakes in Braveheart. Now, were they compelling stakes? Maybe not, but they were definitely more compelling than racing. But the stakes don't have to be like, you know, quote unquote large like it doesn't have to be saving the world in order for the stakes to feel large and feel important again and i'm pretty sure i made this argument in chariots of fire think about like jaws yeah small stakes it's it's like one one island i mean it's like you know people could die which is bad but it is like one island and it's like you could just close the fucking beach like it's you know, like there are simple solutions, but like the stakes feel so large because they put in all of the appropriate tensions. We like have these characters that are really interesting. I'm trying to look at like other stuff that we've loved that we're like, the mm-hmm. stakes aren't like Marty that large. It happened one night. Like all of these Marty, the stakes are, you know, Tom very... Jones, the stakes are not that high in Tom Jones. Well, at, Tom, at the end of Tom Jones, they are going to hang. Tom. I mean, but given the farcical nature of the whole thing, is, are those really stakes? Like, right. I don't know. Right. But like, you know, a lot of these stakes, it's like they're important to the individual. And I mean, like, yeah, this nebulous freedom of which Wallace likes to yell about is very important to him. But like, we're not really diving into like the concept of freedom and what does it mean and what does it mean to individuals based on like their status and like position and what does it mean at that yeah. time? You know, we're not we really don't get it. going into anything. We also, yeah, we also get actual good use of slow-mo. I'd be remiss if I didn't at least pan chariots of fire one last time for 
that. Okay, no, wait, hold on. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Ian, the entire sport is about who can go fastest. Why is every race in slow-mo? Again, exactly my point. <laughs> like I do, despite all of the complaints we have narratively, like the actual construction of the film, the way it was shot, the way it was edited is fine. It's fine. Would I have made different stylistic decisions in places? Absolutely would have. But like, there's no way you can get around the atrocity that is a sprint in slow motion. So yeah, number 55. Again, this is uh, our, what, I said 68th winner? Mm-hmm. Oh, I need to update my numbers on this list because somehow I'm only showing. Oh no, I completely messed up. Oh, I was working off an old version of the list. I mean, I'm still I'm still going to be putting it at number 55. I was going to say, I thought your Chariots of Fire was much lower. Um, I'm still putting it... I mean, everything I said about it, I totally stand by. And honestly, it's going to be rough, like, in the same spot, I think. No, I'm actually going to put it one spot lower. So uh, I, I said what I said, and I will repeat it again. I'm going to be putting it in 56. So that's after uh, The Godfather 2 and before The Greatest Show on Earth. So should I give more reasons or have we covered all the reasons? No, 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 no. You shouldn't because it is going to be my new number 54 right after the Godfather Part Two. Hell yes! Please tell me it's before the Greatest Show on Earth. It is. I mean, the Greatest Show on Earth is actually much further down my list than you have it. Even though I will maintain it is my favorite bad Best Picture winner. I love that movie, but it is who not well done. <laughs> um, it is right above Gentleman's Agreement, and for me, um, I'll talk about why it's above Gentleman's Agreement first. So, Gentleman's Agreement, I think, has an incredibly strong ending. And it has a couple very powerful scenes, but we run into a lot of the same issues of like, I don't really care a, as much about the main character as I think I'm supposed to, to have a lot of it really like hit home. Um, I will say that I do think that one does like a little bit better of going into its themes than Braveheart, but I think like the overall construction of Braveheart's a little bit better. Um, but you do with gentlemen's agreement, like you are dealing with like a very complicated, important issue around like anti-Semitism. But like the movie, I don't think really does as much as it could for the theme, with the exception of like that last scene. So again, it's like it's like a film that like went went for something big, but kind of falls short. Um, it is right after The Godfather Part Two because, I mean. Even though, like, I think The Godfather Part Two also has, like, a little bit of an issue with focus and not really knowing, like, which storyline it wants to focus on and follow, um, I do think it's, like, a little bit more thought out than Braveheart is. And we do have, like, more of a character arc with Michael Corleone. Um, again, it's a, it's a spiral. It's a descent. <laughs> but we do have more of a character arc to drive us through a painfully long movie than we did with Braveheart. And as much as I don't connect with the Godfather series, like I will concede that like the editing and the cinematography like are arguably better than Braveheart. 
Agreed. Agreed. And again, I mean, I think that's another one where it's like a movie where I'm like, is it me or is it the movie? Am I just not the audience for this? So yeah, similar, but I, I'm with you. I think Braveheart is on definitely on the weaker end of winners. Uh, more like the weakest end of winners. <laughs> it's in our bottom 10 or so, right? Like, uh, no, I have 14 movies that are worse. Okay. Well, I only have Google sheets. Won't give me a count. Will it? That's annoying. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 11. Okay. You're right. I have 11 movies that are worse, yeah. but, but I mean, it's, yeah, it's not, it's not what I'm going to be recommending oh, same. people. So that's Braveheart. Um, I can't say I'd recommend this one. No, no, I wouldn't. But, uh, you know, if you guys disagree, there's something about Braveheart you really, really love, definitely let us know. We are on Instagram and Twitter at Best Pictures Pod on both, or you can email us in at bestpicturespodcast at gmail.com. Please rate, subscribe, review. Uh, that definitely helps us out. You guys know the drill. So thanks for joining us for Braveheart. And as Maggie said, uh, join us next for a wild card episode. <laughs>